What happened to Bryce Harper? We'll talk about that and more with Rob Arthur, the baseball writer at 538.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 26th. It's show number 41 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Rob Arthur, the baseball writer at 538.com, about what happened to Bryce Harper, the new stats in baseball, using exit velocity data, where the home runs are coming from, as well as some potential studs and duds for 2017 and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the return of A.J. Pollock, a name to tuck away for the Reds' bullpen next year, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at the Houston infield, a significant injury in Boston, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Rob Gordon and Ryan Bloomfield are on holiday this week. So in our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Yankees third baseman Ronald Torres and Minnesota right-handed pitcher Pat Light. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including a Saturday National League game with Philadelphia right-hander Jeremy Hellickson in tough against the Mets righty Noah Syndergaard in New York. And to wrap it all up, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the strange story of how I became a baseball HQ writer. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? BaseballHQ.com is finishing its celebration of its 20th anniversary. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. And since uh, you're down there in uh, Louisiana, they've had some pretty intense flooding. Are you staying high and dry? We're staying high and dry so far. It's been really bad here. It's been been just awful, but we're staying high and dry. I'll, I'll say this to anybody who's listening. Uh, if you can help the folks in Louisiana make a donation to the American Red Cross or some of the other well-organized and legitimate charities, uh, please do so. The, the people down there could use a hand. Uh, we're going to go the opposite tack, Nick, and start in the desert. The Diamondbacks got a rare bit of good news this season. Injured outfielder A.J. Pollock is activated from the DL. He's been on there the entire season. This has got to be a great help to any owner who's had him on the DL all year. It's like getting a free uh, free free agent coming across from the other league or something like that. Rob Carroll analyzed the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. I have to say, 128 games is a lot of games missed. How much help do you think Pollock can actually be for his fantasy owners? Well, you know, if it, it, it is a lot of time to miss, but, you know, you've got a month left, and, and uh, we are projecting, I think, 92 at-bats and about a $20 value out of those 92 at-bats. So, you know, if, if, if things are tight, Pollock could, uh, could be a real help. His, his bat has certainly looked red, ready in rehab. He's been hitting very, very well, a 1.286 OPS in, in 40 at-bats. Uh, the initial plan is for him to play two of every three games, which is 20, 25 games through the end of the season. And 
you know, if you, if you remember, think if you if you've forgotten AJ Pollock, uh, look back to where we were last season with Pollock. I mean, you had a guy who hit uh, who hit three fifteen with twenty homers and thirty nine stolen bases, and so. Uh, you know, that was in, that was in 609 at bats, but take a sixth of that and you could get three homers and, you know, what, four, five or six stolen bases and a 300 batting average. That's worth something. Uh, Nick, AJ Pollock coming back, even playing two games out of three means somebody's losing some playing time here. Yeah, very, very obviously. Michael Bourne's going to take the biggest hit, we think, at about a 40% loss of playing time and, uh, could join an already crowded contingent in left field. Uh, Brandon Drury may lose a little bit of time, say 5%. Mitch Hanniger, Ricky Weeks, 20%. So the, there's some guys going to lose some time, obviously, with Pollock returning. What about Yasmani Thomas? He's been really hot. Been very hot, but probably be the primary right fielder. Uh, been real hot in the second half with a 9.41 OPS and 103 BPV. So uh, we don't see much playing time loss at any for for, uh, for Yasmani. But uh, uh, look, at, look for Pollock to be in there, as we said, every two out of every three games. Uh, and if he's available in your league, go get him. Obviously, uh, most most probably not in most leagues. Probably already on somebody's DL. But if he's on your DL, get him activated. A few leagues I know play a rule where you can't have a DL. There's no reserve lists. If you if a guy goes on the DL, you just have to waive him. In which case, he might be available. But yeah, that's pretty rare, I think. Uh, and of course, if you do have him, activate him and uh, take advantage of the end of season gains. Yeah, and I would guess, you know, I would guess that Pollock is going to be more valuable than anyone who's likely to be brought up at the time of, of September call-ups. I mean, you've got a, a proven major leaguer in Pollock who's done it before, and there's certainly some, some guys who may come up who may post some nice stats, uh, but that's an iffy thing because they haven't played in the majors up to this point. While we're in Arizona, they have a new closer again. Uh, Enrique Burgos is out. Daniel Hudson is in for now. What the heck is going on, Nick, in this Arizona bullpen? The Arizona bullpen is a mess, and, and they, they, they get a guy in and install him as closer, and then he suddenly can't pitch anymore. And so uh, Jake Barrett is, uh, has pitched his way out of contention. He's walking everybody he faces. Uh, his control over the last month is 8.8 .8 walks per nine innings, so uh, that's not going to do it for a closer. Uh, and Ricky Burgos uh, has not pitched particularly well. He gave up seven earned runs, three homers in his first four appearances. Uh, did get a win and a save, but uh, obviously giving up runs at that rate is not going to keep him in the closer role. So now they're going to look at Daniel Hudson. And, you know, uh, Daniel Hudson is, is kind of interesting. If you're looking for a couple of saves down the stretch, and we say a couple of saves down the stretch, um, Daniel Hudson may be someone to look at. Uh, at this point for the season, he hasn't been all that good, a 5.98 ERA. But a uh, decent command ratio, 2.3 command. His velocity is good, throwing at about 95 miles an hour. Uh, ground ball rate is up to around 42%. So perhaps Daniel Hudson could do something uh, over this last part of the season. It's hard to know who would be in the mix going into next year. If Hudson were to pitch well, perhaps. There have been rumors that they might try to get Brad Ziegler back. But at his age, why would you do that if you're a young rebuilding team? So right now the, the uh, Arizona bullpen situation is just simply a mess. And sometimes there's opportunity in mess. Uh, the a lot of people are going to look at the situation and just bow out. But uh, as you say, Daniel Hudson has the role, and, and when you're looking for closers, especially in the short run, that's the key thing. I think is who's got the ball in the ninth inning. Because let's be honest, getting a save is not that hard in a lot of instances. Three outs with a three run lead against the seven eight nine hitters, those kind of situations, very low leverage, very good results for fantasy purposes. I'd grab Daniel Hudson if he was a 
available, especially if I was in a race in saves where two or three saves could get me two or three points. Uh, very definitely. If, you, if, if a couple, of, if two saves, three saves could get you a couple of points, Daniel Hudson is worth a grab and a, a, a shot at least over the last month of the season. And of course, the worry with guys like that is he's gonna he's gonna hurt your ERA and and WHIP. But this late in the season, you've probably got 900, 950 innings pitched. If he has a couple of stinkers out there, I mean, how much damage can he do? I mean, I suppose he could give up eight earned runs in, in a third of an inning or something like that. But when you figure out the arithmetic, even that's not that disastrous. You know, the, the, it seems to me that the potential gains in saves outweigh the small risk of a, of a big blow up hurting your ratios. Yeah, I think you may absolutely be right on that. I mean, at this point, your ratios are pretty where, well where they're going to be. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of movement in those ratios, I think, over the next month because you've got a lot of innings pitched going into them. So certainly the saves are worth more than that little bit of damage. Moving on in Miami, Derek Dietrich is somebody we've talked about on the podcast a few times, and now he's on the DL with a right knee contusion. Uh, Nick, I think when you're a famous ball player, a contusion is what we would call a bruise. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today. What's the skinny on Derek Dietrich, and who gains the playing time with him being out of the lineup? Yeah, you're, you're probably right. A contusion is what we call a bruise. And, you know, the move was retroactive to last Friday, August the 19th, uh, placed in the DL at the same time that the Marlins claimed uh, Oswaldo Arcia on waivers from Tampa Bay. And that seems to be the guy who's going to replace Dietrich, at least at the moment. Uh, Arcia's contact issues have been... Uh, Worse so far this year than his career numbers. We're looking at a 59% contact rate, which has kept his batting average down to 229. But Arcia does hit some home runs at 127 PX. And with uh, Giancarlo Stanton going to miss the rest of the regular season, he gets some playing time in the Miami outfield and might hit you a couple of dingers. Uh, and as we just talked about, those those home runs may be worth more than the poor batting average he's going to generate uh, over the, the short time that he's in there. That's that's right. First of all, he could have a nice little hot streak and bounce all the way up to the exalted heights of 240 or something like that. But even if he hits 230 or 220 or whatever his usual achievements are in that area, again, this is even a, a more stark uh, example than ERA is because most teams by now are floating around 5,800, 6,200, 6,500 at-bats. Even in a month of poor at-bats, Oswaldo Arcia can't move your batting average that much. And for that reason, again, home runs is a, is a category where three or four could mean some points. Oswaldo Arcia is the kind of guy who can hit three home runs in a week. Yeah, he is. And, you know, so, so what would happen if he, if he got to, over the last month 30 at-bats and hit three home runs and, and didn't get any other hits? Would that hurt your average that much? Probably not, but those three homers could, could mean a lot. In his excellent starting pitcher buyer's guide, Stephen Nickrand looked at some home road splits, looking for pitchers who are markedly different at home than they are on the road. And a name that popped out for me was Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray. Yeah, I like Robbie Ray. You know, Robbie Ray is a guy that, especially if you're, say, in a keeper league, uh, take a look at Robbie Ray uh, and locking him up before the end of the season if he's out there on your waiver wire. Uh, and he might, he might well be. Robbie Ray has had some rough numbers at home in Arizona. 5.02 ERA, 1.61 whip, uh, 0.877 OPS allowed. Uh, really not very good when he's, when he's at home, and, and that's coloring his overall numbers. On the road, a 3.56 ERA, 1.26 whip. Uh, but skills have been really strong at home. A 122 BPV, um, higher DOM on the road, but, but still a 10.3 DOM at home. 12.2 DOM on the road, comparable walk rates. What's been happening in Arizona is, is some bad luck. An unfriendly uh, 
uh, 40% hit rate, a 16% home run per fly rate. Some of that's the ballpark that he's pitching in. But regression in those numbers would allow him to start putting on home stats that are like road stats. And even if you just could, could pitch Robbie Ray on the road, if you have that capability in your league, here's a guy that could be a really uh, upper-tier starting pitcher. I looked at Robbie Ray about a month ago, Nick, in uh, Facts and Fluke Spotlight for BaseballHQ.com. It's a deep dive on a, on a particular player, skills-wise and otherwise. And uh, what I found about Robbie Ray, and this is a cautionary note for anybody who's thinking about him, what he needs to do to step up from being let's be honest, a mediocre average type pitcher is he needs to start limiting contact and he especially needs to start limiting hard contact. Right. And I remember that, that, that article you did, it was a very good one. And uh, yes, he's got to start limiting hard contact because that's the thing that is hurting the most, I think at the moment. Especially in that park. I mean, Arizona is a well-known hitter's park, and it's going to be difficult for any pitcher to survive giving up hard contact in a small park. It would be like dropping a right-handed pitcher into the Yankee Stadium and saying, go ahead and give up, you know, 10% more hard contact than everybody else in the league. It's not a recipe for success. Right. Very definitely it's not. And, and you're right. That ballpark, that ballpark is a problem. And so you've got to keep that in mind. And he's got to learn to pitch in that ballpark if he's going to have uh, overall the kind of the kind of stats that someone with his dom rate is capable of, of putting up. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, meanwhile, columnist Doug Dennis, he does a great job. Uh, he looks at the top 25 relievers this year in expected ERA. And expected ERA is an interesting stat because it's skills-based and kind of tries to ignore park effects and those kind of things. Many names you'd expect on this list, of course, uh, Andrew Miller, Dallin Betances, Seroldis Chapman, Kenley Jansen. But like the kitty song goes, one of these things is not like the other. And in this case, the name that jumped out for me was Cincinnati right-hander Michael Lorenzen. You know, if you're trying to figure out who's going to be the, the closer in Cincinnati for, uh, next season, uh, Singrani simply is, is not going to get the job done. So they're going to have a better reliever in place next season than Singrani. Racel Iglesias is great. Uh, there's no problem with Racel Iglesias. Uh, he is an excellent pitcher. He would like to be in the bullpen and, and be the closer, I think, but, I, but Cincinnati Brass may want him in the starting rotation. And either place, if you've got Rachel Iglesias, you've got a guy who's going to give you something. But let's say Iglesias winds up in the starting rotation, which he very well could. The next guy to look at is Michael Lorenzen, and he has been terrific. 9.3 Dom, 2.6 control, 3.6 command, uh, only giving up, giving up less than uh, one home run per nine in a small park. Uh, 2.61 ERA, 2.69 XERA, really, really nice stats. And add to that a 64% ground ball rate. This is a guy who clearly has the, the chops to close. Uh, and if he gets the chance, he could make a real, a real good closer next season. He does look like an interesting speculative get for the for next season in keeper leagues, and I would do it. I'm, I'm a Reds fan anyway, and I have little enough to cheer about But <laughs> in that regard. But uh, here's a situation where the, another thing to look at in Michael Lorenzen's favor, I think, is the Reds, sad to say, are something of a penny-pinching operation. And so if they look at their bullpen and think, we need to make some changes here, especially if Iglesias, as you say, goes to the rotation, the Reds are not going to go out into the free agent market and re-sign our oldest Chapman. They're just not. They just don't have that kind of cash, or even if they do, they're unwilling to spend it. So the team context plays in here that the Reds appear, for financial reasons, to be the kind of team that would promote from within. I think you're absolutely right. That makes complete complete sense, especially when they have a guy who looks like he could do the job. 
they're much more likely to promote from within than going out and signing a high-priced free agent. All right, Nick, uh, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. Keep your rubbers by the door, and uh, we'll talk to you again in uh, seven days' time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here as usual. Some news in Houston. Luis Valbuena they thought would be back by early September, but it looks like he's undergone some surgery, torn hamstring, done for the year. You've been covering this ever-shifting playtime situation in Houston for a while now. How does the Luis Valbuena um, injury affect the outlook for playing time over the rest of this season for Houston? Well, the good news for Houston is they obviously have a glut of third base types since the promotions of uh, Alex Bregman and uh, uh, Ulieski Guriel, and in fact, Valbuena actually looked ticketed for most of his remaining time in September over at first base, which is interestingly enough where he played most of the second half of 2015. The problem Houston actually has is that first base isn't settled right now. You've got A.J. Reed over there playing better than he did initially in his first call-up, but he's still inconsistent. He's still swinging and missing too much. Houston's probably going to give him more time there to straighten out over the next week or so. But but you have rosters expanding in less than a week uh, at the beginning of September. So at that point, all bets are off. Now, it, it's interesting. The other issue here, of course, is, is how long the Astros can remain competitive in the postseason hunt. Uh, as of Friday, they were eight and a half games behind Texas in the AL West, so their chances there are slim. But even in the wild card, they're four games out, and they're behind four other teams. So they have their work cut out for them. I think the uh, key thing you mentioned there, Jock, is how many teams are between you and where you need to be. I think that's just as true in fantasy baseball as it is in real baseball. If you're trying to figure out what chance you have of finishing third in your league and you're eighth, answer is not that good because so many other things have to fall badly for all those teams in between you for you to move up. And the same thing is true in a wild card race or a pennant race in Major League Baseball. Houston, well, I mean, I'm not going to say they're done, but they sure have a lot of teams to overcome and they have to have a lot of help from teams out of the race beating teams that are in the race and that they're chasing doesn't look good for Houston yeah and and it's not just their offense that has sputtered their starting pitching has been pretty bad that they still have Lance McCullers on the DL so I agree with you I I think they're they they're having uphill battle ahead of them and if they realize that in the front office, then does that change anything about how they approach September as far as maybe giving some auditions to some of their other players? Does it uh, maybe resting some of their veterans, anything along those lines? Yeah, you know, obviously, if they're still in contention, they're going to try to run out their best team uh, every night, particularly in September. If they fall out, chances are they're going to turn first base over to uh, to Reed uh, just to hopefully shorten his learning curve for 2017 since he's, he's still the first baseman of the future. But uh, otherwise, if he's not hitting and they're still contending, uh, when roster expansion comes, you've got Tyler White. Uh, you can put uh, Marwin Gonzalez over there at first base. Uh, there's there's all kinds of options. So there's there's plenty of impact. The the the, the real the real uh, postseason race have have has plenty of impact on uh, fantasy playing time going forward. 
I think the first question Houston's going to have to ask is, how do they get Bregman and Gurriel into the lineup at the same time? They're both nominally third basemen. Um, where do they fit these guys in? Could one of them move over to first and, and fill that gap while the other plays third, or they could switch back and forth, something along those lines? Looks like Gaddis has DH pretty much locked down, and they don't want to change from that, so it's either left field or first base, right? Yeah, uh, Gaddis is still going to catch a little bit, but you're right. I still think he's the primary DH just because he's, he's. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a 20 home run hitter, and, and in the last month he's hit about 290, 300. So they're not going to take him out of the lineup. I keep waiting for one of those guys to get some first base reps, and who knows? Maybe it happens this week. Um, uh, particularly Bregman, who's a who's a pretty decent athlete. First base and left field have to fit into the equation on how they fit both of those bats into the lineup simultaneously. So it'll be interesting to see what the Astros do going forward. Interestingly, on the defensive spectrum, left field and first base are the easiest positions to play. So as far as trying to fit a guy maybe into someplace he's not comfortable with, it's not like you're asking him to catch or play shortstop. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, if, if you can, if you have a decent glove, it shouldn't be that difficult to at least uh, hold your own, particularly if the Astros need uh, need a bat in the lineup, and they do. And, and Bregman has actually been one of their better hitters over the past two, three weeks. He has suddenly caught fire. We didn't actually discuss uh, Gurriel at all. From what little we've seen of him or know of him, what do you think his chances are of having uh, five weeks of impact in fantasy terms? Yeah, it's kind of tough to say. His minor league numbers actually weren't that good, but we're talking about 50 at-bats. Uh, he got a hit in his first game. He pulled a hamstring. Uh, it, it, it's my understanding that it's a minor injury, but they kept him out of the starting lineup while they were in a National League park in Pittsburgh, so they had a little bit more flexibility to deal with that and get him uh, get him recovered. But now that they're back in AL parks, I think this weekend, it'll be interesting to see what they do with him. Moving along, we go to Boston uh, and some postseason ramifications there with a big injury to Andrew Benintendi. The rookie was having a pretty uh, solid start in Boston. He was hitting. He was fielding well. He was really just a, 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 a great young player in the Boston situation, but I was watching the game the other night. He he was on second. There was a ground ball, and he took off thinking the contact play was on, but it wasn't, so he kind of tried to do a U-turn, rolled his ankle, and somehow has sprained his knee in the process. How does Matt, Andrew Benintendi's sprained knee affect the playing time situation in Boston? Well, for Boston, obviously, uh, losing a, a hitter like Benintendi isn't a good thing, but this was a great offense to begin with. So overall, I'm not sure how much impact there's going to there's gonna be on it. The interesting news now is that it sounds like uh, uh, Chris Young, who's a right-handed hitter, is going to get at least the, the, a slight majority of the at-bats in left field to begin with, with uh, left-hander Brock Holt maybe subbing for him against tough righties. Uh, Holt, of course, is also splitting time with third base with Travis Shaw. In the recent past, it's been Holt getting most of these vacated at bats, but his uh, 2016 performance has been down from recent years. Uh, he's hitting about 250. Uh, he hit 280 in each of the last two years, and it's all related to hit rate. Uh, he, he had a 35% hit rate then, and now it's down to, I think, something like 29%. Young has actually been a little better this year, um, although he, he he's been on the DA, on the um, DL most of the second half with hamstring issues, but uh, he's put together a nice little year. I think a 270 batting average, uh, 500 slugging. Um, Boston's an interesting lineup to to have a player catch fire in. So if Young can get some at bats, uh, who knows? Maybe he's a good pickup over these last five weeks. 
And Young's performance against right-handed uh, pitching is not as maybe bad as people perceive. They see that 1,100 OPS against lefties this year, and they think, well, that must mean he can't hit righties. And, of course, he's not, he's not wailing on them to an 1,100 OPS, but he's a little over 700, which is kind of league average, so he's not killing the Red Sox or a fantasy team going in there and getting his cuts against right-handers. Yeah, exactly. And he's not. And uh, like John Farrell said, he's not going to be in there every day against right-handers. So if they, if they match him up carefully, he could be an asset. For sure. If the only time you don't hit against right-handers is when they're really good right-handers, that actually is a benefit to, to the player and to his fantasy owners. In Baltimore, the Orioles have had some really bad news. Their rotation uh, was no great shakes to start with. Now they've put Chris Tillman on the DL, which is called bursitis in his left shoulder. Uh, anytime I hear left shoulder, I get worried. The Baltimore rotation is definitely the weak spot of this team. They're in first place, uh, chasing first place in the East. What are the fantasy ramifications of Chris Tillman? Is there anyone fantasy owners should be looking at? Uh, not really. Um, Matt Dodge talked a little bit about this in his playing time today uh, column. Uh, Baltimore's likely to mix, mix and match going forward and pray that Tillman recovers soon. Ubaldo Jimenez pitched a, a really good game on Thursday night against Washington and Tillman's app absence. He came away a tough a tough luck loser. Um, he was facing Max Scherzer, but he only gave up a run in six innings. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, Ubaldo has an ERA of about six and a half for the season, and this was just one game. So uh, I wouldn't be rushing out to grab him. I think the best fantasy recommendation coming out of this is to stream your hitters against Baltimore, because even though that pen's been very good most of the season, I think Tillman's absence is going to increase um, uh, the workload uh, on the bullpen now late in the season. I've never thought Chris Tillman is a really terrific pitcher, but he's definitely the best of a poor bunch in Baltimore. I think this is devastatingly bad news for Baltimore. Uh, I don't know what they can do to counter it. Maybe try to make a waiver wire deal. Those are hard for, for top quality pitching. It just isn't going to happen. Nobody's going to let a top pitcher go through waivers, that's for sure. In Chicago, the White Sox have got Avisail Garcia back. He missed most of August with a sprained knee. Uh, Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com covered Garcia's return. What's going to happen with the White Sox? And again, what are the fantasy ramifications? Yeah, this is kind of one of those interesting situations in that Toronto, or I'm sorry, Chicago is out of contention. And this might be a last chance to get a look at uh, what is a perennially disappointing player in Garcia. Who's, he's posted just a, a 243 batting average and a 380 slugging in 332 plate appearances for the season. He's entering his second year of arbitration. A strong finish could factor into whatever Chicago decides to do with him. He's still only 25 years old. But this is a guy who hits way too many ground balls, 54%. His home run fly ball ratio has been in double digits every year. Right now it's 18%, but he doesn't hit enough, enough fly balls to tap into that. They really need to work on his swing uh, to get him to ta uh, tap into his natural skills. And so far they haven't been successful. You know that home run per fly ball ratio, when you think about how it works, Sometimes we look at it and we say he's not hitting enough ground balls to, to, to get home runs despite this great ratio he has. But really, I think the truth is because he hits so few fly balls, his ratio looks better than it really would if he was hitting more fly balls. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, it's an, a, a trick of arithmetic more than it is a, a skill examination. He's, uh, his ground ball rate is too high to hit a lot of home runs, but it affects his home run per fly ball rate because he has the same number of home runs in fewer fly balls. And we jumped to the conclusion that if he doubled his fly balls, he doubled his home runs, and I'm not sure that's the case. 
Yeah, I'm not sure he'd double his home runs, but I'm pretty sure he'd hit more home runs if he hit more fly balls. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe he would, but then what happens to all the fly balls that don't fall for home runs? You know what I mean? It's like a double-edged sword for guys like Garcia that, you know, maybe the the ones that they get to the outfield have a lot of pop, but if he alters his swing to try to get more of them, all of a sudden things start falling apart and what paltry batting average he has gets even worse you know it's it's a it's a real tough thing to manage yeah it, the ground ball thing sure isn't working for him though no that's for sure a 54 percent ground ball rate for a rel- relatively slow power hitter he's got to figure something out or i imagine the uh white Sox will move on they they had a guy called jason coates i guess we're not too impressed with him yeah, Cuts was sent down to the minors uh, to make way for uh, Garcia. Cuts looks like uh, kind of a journeyman uh, fourth outfielder type. Your Los Angeles Angels jock made a bunch of moves. Uh, first, they brought back C.J. Crone from the DL, put him back into first base. And uh, let's talk about that, then we'll move on to Johnny Giovatella. Yeah, I've always uh, liked Crone probably a little more than I should, being the fanboy that I am. Um, his return was... Um, and it was made sooner than I anticipated. And the people who first estimated his injury, they didn't think he was going to be back until at least early September, maybe mid-September. He's going to get most of the at-bats at first base down the stretch. Albert Pujols is now a most-of-the-time DH uh, due to his feet. Um, G-Man Choi was sent to the minors. He'll be back uh, when rosters expand. Jeffrey Marte lose playing time. The thing I like about what Crone's done this season, his contact rate and his walk rate have improved uh, He's not a world beater uh, in terms of, of taking pitches. He's still only up to 6% walk rate, but 84% contact. He was hitting 274 with 11 home runs through 263 at-bats before he left, uh, before he went on the DL. Um, and this this was on top of a really terrible April. I don't have what he hit in front of me, but it was something like 190. So he'd been terrific since April. Uh, I like him going forward here. Now, Johnny Giovatella has been uh, released. Uh, does that surprise you, and why would they make this move at this time? Well, it, it was a limited surprise. I mean, Giovatella's not a world beater. Um, um, his his uh, 260 uh, batting average and 287 expected batting average were, was within hailing distance of his 2015 production when he was the Angels regular, and he was the regular most of the year this of the year this year. And he was actually coming off of July in which he'd hit 284 over 74 at bats. But they only gave him 19 at-bats in August, and I think some around here are suggesting that his coming arbitration years had something to do with this. But when you look at, when you look at Giovatella and his skills, uh, he'd improved a little defensively. Still not a good defender. Both Cliff Pennington and Gregorio Pettit, who are going to split second base going forward, um, they're, they're better gloves. And they're also mo- more versatile. I mean, Giovatella's range was so bad. Um, there's no way he could play but second base. And the only really real offensive he, skill he had was contact. He didn't walk a lot, didn't have a lot of power, um, unless the hits were falling for him. He just wasn't a very good player. Uh, I think the Angels' second base spot still remains a bit of a black hole for fantasy owners looking for production. You mentioned Gregorio Pettit, Cliff Pennington also in the mix uh, in the second base Angels situation. Like you said, it is kind of a black hole. Between the three of them, I th- I don't think any of them has a really fantasy marketable skill. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, you I I would simply avoid uh, avoid Angel second base until they can figure it out. And uh, I have no clue what they're going to do there organizationally. This is this is a very disappointing team to be a fan of. Up here in my neck of the woods, uh, Jock Aaron Sanchez was demoted all the way to single A Dunedin, which came as something of a surprise to a lot of observers. What did you think when you heard the news? 
Well, you know what's interesting? I, I thought, uh, I've seen this done a little bit this year. I, I, I've seen the Dodgers do this with Julio Arias, obviously. Um, they want to rest uh, Sanchez a little bit. He's probably not going to pitch that much in the minors. I think they got him off the roster so that they could get a pitcher who would pitch. Um, I was going to ask you about it. You're closer to the situation than uh, than I am. I saw I saw what happened with Urias and the Dodgers when they sent him down. I think he pitched once in ten days and not very many innings. Uh, what do you think is going to happen here? Uh, General Manager Ross Atkins of the Blue Jays has already said that uh, Sanchez will not pitch in Single A Dunedin at all. He'll do his regular work and coaching and maybe work with some of the strength and conditioning guys down there. That's where the Blue Jays maintain that op- part of their operation. I think the main reason he was sent down was because the Blue Jays were in a roster squeeze. There's been a couple of stories in the media and on one of the Blue Jay blogs here that pointed out they were at, of course, the 25-man maximum on their roster. And then Kevin Pillar comes back. Then Bautista comes back. They had already recalled Aaron Loop to take uh, Sanchez's roster spot, but they were still... Uh, um, they, they were still over, and Sanchez basically volunteered to go down because they wanted to get him some rest and uh, cut down on his innings pitch for the season so that he could be ready for the playoffs. And I believe that he took a $27,000 haircut. Uh, it's in U.S. dollars, so like $4 million Canadian, something like that, just because he wanted to help the team by allowing them to put guys on the roster and get the rest that the team thinks he needs for the stretch run for the playoffs. Now, the... the, the uh, the question here is, what happens later? Well, of course, on, he'll come back, uh, according to the plan, on August 31st. That's the end of a three-game series with Baltimore, which has tremendous ramifications for the pennant race. And uh, after that, of course, 40-man rosters, they can bring them all back. Yeah, I mean, to me, this move actually made sense. Again, because I'd, I'd seen it done before, and I, I kind of had, had a feeling I knew what Toronto was doing. I mean, obviously, 25-man roster isn't very big, and when you're in, you're in a a pennant race and a wild card race, and and I I I don't think there's more than a game separating Toronto, Boston, and uh, Baltimore right now. Um, you need uh, to to make use of those 25 man roster spots, and if you need a guy that needs rest, uh, send him to the minors, let him get his work in. Uh, I think Sanchez is going to be a very critical piece to their drive in September. So uh, good move all around, in my opinion. Well, I I think some of it remains to be seen because if the Blue Jays believe that they're a World Series contender, they are going to run Sanchez well over the innings limit I think they had in mind because he's going to be pitching in the playoffs. And that that really changes a lot of the uh, equations and mathematics about whether or not they're doing what they need to do for future seasons as well as this one. I think they're going all in. There's been a lot of talk around Toronto and in the Toronto baseball media about whether the Blue Jays are going to go with this six-man rotation, which is what they originally said. The three options seems to be a six-pitcher rotation, but that has adverse effects for Jay Happ, who pitches very poorly on anything other than four days rest. It might help Estrada. Dickey's kind of a four, uh, every fifth-day guy. Using the six-pitcher rotation helps Sanchez and seems to get in the way of everybody else at the minimum and maybe actually hurt some of the pitchers who are already established. The The other plan was put Sanchez in the bullpen, have a five-man rotation with Francisco Luriano acting as the fifth starter. I think, Jock, what's going to happen is I think there's going to be a five-man rotation, but I think Liriano's going to be in the bullpen and Sanchez is going to be in the rotation and they have three or four off days between now and the end. 
I believe they will use those off days to get Sanchez extra days of rest between his starts, and I think they need a left-hander in the bullpen, and Liriano's a fastball slider guy, not much else, but he could really be an effective left-handed reliever, and Brett Cecil hasn't been so great lately. This might be just the ticket for what they need for the for the stretch run. Yeah, interesting stuff. It's interesting what uh, September and pennant races and tired pitchers uh Due to our uh, the impact they have on our fantasy races, uh, all stuff that uh, has to be considered in depth if you're planning your roster and, and you're in a tight race. Yeah, uh, the fantasy implication I would suggest uh, owners look at is if somebody in your league is a little worried about uh, Sanchez's starts for the balance of the season and maybe dangling him around, I would definitely make an offer, uh, e- even in a non-keeper league. In a keeper league, I think nobody would offer him because he obviously has such a bright future. And if I had uh, Francisco Liriano as a starting pitcher on my fantasy rotation, I'd be looking at trying to figure out other plans. I don't think he's going to get that many starts between now and the end. Well, there you go. There's there's advice from from Patrick Davitt, folks, and uh, he's close to that situation in Toronto. So, um, take it. Well, take it for what it's worth. A, a lot of it's just speculation. Sure. Of course, the team is being very closed mouthed about it. As of course, it's a strategic thing. They don't want their opponents to know what's going on. But I think they are going to try to winkle their rotation around so that Hap, Estrada, and Sanchez get most of the starts against Boston and Baltimore. The rest of the guys can fill in uh, as needed kind of around the edges uh, there. So it does have fantasy implications. Uh, Jock, great talking to you. It's an interesting conversation. That's one thing I like about Baseball HQ Radio. We got plenty of those. Thanks a million. Talk to you next week. All right. See you, PD. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's director of news and analysis and a frequent columnist at the site, and he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Rob Arthur from 538.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my great pleasure to be joined by Rob Arthur, the baseball writer for 538.com. Rob, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. Before we get started talking about baseball and statistics and analysis, how did you become a writer specializing in applying really advanced statistical methods to baseball? Well, I got kind of an odd start in that I was working on my PhD in uh, genomics, actually, evolutionary genomics, and that's a field that's heavily statistical, and I was kind of looking for a creative outlet, so I started a blog, and um, one of the things that, of course, there's great data for and that I was a fan of um, is baseball, so I was applying some of the same stuff from my PhD to look at baseball statistics, 
And uh, that's when um, Ben Lindbergh, who was at the time the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and now writes for The Ringer, he noticed my blog and asked me to go write for them. And so I figured you know, it was a natural thing, and I was getting paid to do something that I'd done as a hobby before. So that's how I got into baseball writing. And then how did you hook up with Nate Silver, a very famous guy and actually an alumnus of BaseballHQ.com and his 538.com site, which is a very well-known website, and it's quite a plum for you. Yeah, um, well, he actually got his start, or, or uh, you know, one of the one of the places that he got his start was at Baseball Perspective. So he keeps an eye on um, people that are writing there and um, keeps up with sort of the latest in baseball analysis, as do other people at the site. And so I think they they noticed um, some of my work there. Uh, and when they were looking for a baseball writer, they contacted me about uh, going to work to them. So that's how it worked. For a lot of people in this business, Rob, uh, doing baseball analysis, working for F- Nate Silver, 538.com, seems like uh, achieving nirvana. How is it to work there? It's great. Um, I don't actually work at the office. I work uh, I work um, remotely from my home in Chicago, but um, it's a fantastic environment to work in, and it's cool to get to um, work alongside the other folks there who are really incredible. And uh, I enjoy it very much. It's it's amazing to have that level of uh, feedback and response and and uh, and thoughts coming back on your articles that you can get there. So that's probably the best part. Do you mean from your peers, from the editors, from readers, or all three? All three, but especially the folks that work there, from the editors to the other writers that take a look and just brainstorming ideas with other other journalists there. It's really great. Since you mentioned that, I used to be in the newspaper business, and I remember uh, uh, I was I had a pretty free hand to operate, and it was a lot of fun for that reason. When you when you, when it's your turn to write a story, do you come up with the idea on your own? Do they suggest things to you, or is it a, a mix of those kind of things? It's a mix of both things. They give me a pretty long leash, and, and so I'm usually able to usually have a couple of ideas sort of uh, in progress to varying degrees. Uh, but if there are events in the news, if there's a for example, a big free agent signing or you know, someone is getting the MVP or a big trade or anything like that, then sometimes I'll be asked to write up something quick about that. But I'm usually given the leeway to uh, kind of come up with my own angle on whatever is happening in baseball. And as a general rule, how do you find those things? I'm always curious, uh, what are your sources of inspiration, shall we say, within the world of baseball that make you look at it and go, I'd like to look into this? Uh, well, I try to keep up with like Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus, which have two of the uh, two of the best baseball writing sites. And um, I also am an avid listener of various podcasts, uh, most especially Effectively Wild, which is a lot of fun. I don't know if you listen to that one. It's the yep. it's a podcast at Baseball Prospectus that's hosted by Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh, and they do just sort of a lot of wild, uh, wacky uh, questions and, and concepts in baseball. So it's it's really fun to listen to them. But basically just keeping my eye out on what's going on on the Internet, what's going on on Twitter, and um, sort of looking in particular for things, questions that people have that um, I think I could provide some insight on with uh, sort of more advanced statistics. And for our listeners' sake, if they're not familiar, Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh actually got to run a team and wrote a book about it, which is very funny and very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. Now, do you play fantasy baseball? It seems like you must with your background. Actually, I don't. I never got into it. Um, and I, once I started writing, I just felt like it would be too much 
too much additional um, too much additional involvement in baseball to to um, be sustainable for me. So I I never uh, touched it, and I think that's actually helped me out in some ways because um, you know I'm not I'm not thinking about my fantasy team all the time, um, which I have heard is quite an obsession for many people. Um, but uh, yeah, I just managed to steer clear of it and then uh, kept other hobbies. Yeah, it would be a bit of a busman's holiday for somebody like you who's uh, in the lab or doing academic-like work in the uh, evolutionary biology field, you said, and then to go back and do the same thing. Yeah, I can see how that might be a, a bit of a grind after a while, turn it in, change it from a hobby, in your case, in the baseball, to a job, more or less. Yes, yeah. And and now I do it as a job, but in a different way. Um, so now, you know, maybe it, it is a good time for me to consider picking it up because the stuff I do now is, um, more emphasis more on the writing and what you can discover with the statistics and less on, you know, building highly accurate quantitative models, which is what sort of I was thinking about before, um, and which would be more applicable to fantasy. So I don't know. Maybe I should give it a try. 538.com, of course, is famous as a political analysis site. Does that interest you in modeling that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten too much into it, um, but there's certainly great data there available there, and um, I've had some ideas that unfortunately never went anywhere with it. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested more broadly. And one of the things that attracted me to 538 was the idea of applying these statistical methods and data analysis to a lot of different areas of human life, including politics. But also some of the, something I've written about, for example, is criminal justice. And I think a lot of um, a lot of criminal justice data is out there, but people really haven't um, gone to work analyzing it and what that can tell you about optimal strategies for policing or things like that. So I think there's a lot of opportunities and I am interested in kind of broadening my scope to look at more different topics. Did you read Bill James's book about uh, how certain famous crimes were solved or not solved and what he thought were the likelihoods that they got the right conclusion? No, I haven't. I haven't read that book. It's pretty interesting. Of course, he comes at it from the same baseball analysis side that he applied very famously into baseball over the years. Uh, if, if you're into crime and you're into statistics, you could do worse. It's pretty interesting. Uh, we're at what looks like the beginning of a statistics revolution in baseball, of course. Uh, which of the new stats uh, from StatCast or PitchFX have you found to be the most interesting or revelatory for your analytical purposes? Uh, from my perspective, I think the best is probably exit velocity from StatCast, which has just come about in the last two years. And it's a really interesting statistic. It's much more indicative of a hitter's underlying ability than anything that you could look at based on an outcome, like their batting average or their slugging percentage. All those things come with noise that is partially contributed by the park, sometimes by the defense, and sometimes by just dumb luck. But what the hitter definitely can control is the velocity of the ball coming off the bat. And that's been really fascinating to look at for a whole bunch of different hitters. And it's very interesting in terms of not only what it can tell you, but what it can't. For example, we know that fast hitters outperform their exit velocities, and that's probably because they're running out grounders that other slower hitters couldn't. So there's, to me, if you're only going to pick one, that has to be it. It's, it's the most um, illuminating of all the statistics that have come out in the last uh, five, ten years, I think. Is the reverse true as far as pitchers? They, I know you've. Uh, we're going to talk about this in a second, but your your uh, conclusion when you analyzed this was that the pitcher is not really that responsible for exit velocity. 
not really not as responsible as the hitter, but can still contribute something to it. And I think that that is also one of the big uh, findings. Um, and it's been you know it's been found by a lot of people, not just me. Um, and it kind of runs contrary to what people, what sabermetricians in particular, had thought about um, defense independent pitching statistics, namely that uh, pitchers can't really control the quality of contact. If you look at the exit velocities, though, it seems like some pitchers at least are able to control quality of contact to some degree. Um, so while pitchers exercise less control, it does what exit velocity has shown us is that they are, um, they fit. Uh, or fielding independent pitching statistics, those kinds of things, they're not completely encapsulating or, or wholly measuring what a pitcher is able to do. Are there any stats coming from StatCast or maybe new technologies that you'd like to see developed to advance the analytical cause even further, whether you know they're in the pipeline already? I know there are some stats that Major League Baseball is generating that we don't get to see because they're proprietary. Is there anything out there that you'd like to know more about? I would love to see the raw data that's coming out of StatCast. So what it actually consists of is that they're measuring the the uh, position and direction and movement of every player and the ball on the field, something like 60 times a second um, across the whole baseball game. So they're really there's a tremendous amount of data that comes from that, right? Um, absolutely massive. Uh, and there's a lot that you could do with it. One of the major things that I'd like to see is some kind of metric based on fielding. Um, but really, if you just had that, those positions and uh, across the course of the game, you could do just almost anything with that, and it would it would be a huge advance, I think. Um, so the raw data, but if if we can't get access to the raw data for whatever reason, then perhaps um, a, a good substitute would be some kind of fielding metric. Most of us who do statistical analysis of the game at any level have heard the complaint from uh, other fans that the statistical revolution, we hear this a lot from the broadcast booths as well, is somehow dehumanizing the game of baseball. I imagine you've heard that or read that in your fandom. How do you respond when you hear that complaint? I think it's just the opposite. I understand why people get that notion if all you're talking about is for example, exit velocity or launch angle or whatever advanced metric. But the truth is, in, in my opinion, adding that information doesn't reduce any the other sides of the game, right? In fact, it just adds context or um, sort of background to what's going on on the field and the human side of it. So, for example, um, I think that with exit velocity, we've been able to see that some hitters kind of fluctuate in terms of their exit velocity over the course of a year. And before, I think a lot of sabermetricians would have said that that's just dumb luck, and it has nothing to do with what's going on with the player. Um, and that that kind of approach maybe could be dehumanizing in a way because it sort of minimizes whatever uh, is unique to the player, whatever's happening in their life, or whatever. Um, in fact, what we've seen with the new information is that it adds some some additional detail to that story. So Bryce Harper may have been dealing with an injury, and we'll I guess we'll talk about this later. But you know. That the fact that his exit velocity dipped over the course of the time when he was dealing with this injury um, reminds you, to a certain extent, that he is a human and he's um, having to go through the grind of the season uh, in exactly the way that any old-school baseball mind would tell you. Um, so I think that this new information doesn't take away from that. It, in fact, adds to it if you use it right and gives you more to talk about and more to analyze and more to think about uh, in terms of players as humans. 
Now, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, exit velocity, and I know that you've written an article t- to the effect at 538.com analyzing exit velocity. And as I said, you've concluded that r- the batter is responsible for about five parts out of six of, of the exit velocity of the ball. Uh, give us a, an overview of how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, so basically what I did is I took the exit velocities from every hitter and pitcher in the game, and I built this model to see how much of a given exit velocity on a given batted ball was explained by who the hitter was versus who the pitcher was. So this is kind of a very fancy way of doing like with with or without use statistics. So essentially, if you add, let's say, Giancarlo Stanton to a given matchup, how many additional miles per hour of exit velocity do you expect to see? And likewise, if you add Clayton Kershaw to a matchup, how many fewer uh, exit how many fewer miles per hour of exit velocity do you expect to see? So when I did that all together, I looked at kind of the spread in or the variation in talent for hitters versus pitchers, and I found that for hitters it's about five times wider than it is for pitchers. And that seems to be kind of a good general rule of thumb or way to think about this. Basically, hitters are much more responsible for what is going to happen to a given batted ball than a pitcher is, even the best pitchers. But with that said, a really great pitcher like Kershaw, for example, um, is capable of depressing the batted ball velocity to some extent as well. So the, the raw spread is something like, let's say, about six miles per hour plus or minus for hitters and one mile per hour plus or minus for pitchers. I've always thought since they started broadcasting these exit velocity data and making them available through BaseballSavant.com and there's some other places... I've always thought since that data started coming out that the core skills the batter owns isn't the exit velocity of the ball, but the swinging velocity of the bat. Am I wrong about that? And does StatCast track bat speed as an independent variable within the exit velocity uh, dependent variable? So I don't think that StatCast is able to calculate um, bat speed separately. Um, Really, the problem is with the radar tracking system. There's some technical limitations and I don't fully understand that, and unfortunately I haven't released the technical details, so we can't, we can't know for sure. But according to my conversations with people who would know better than me, um, they're not able to measure the raw bat speed. All you can get then is essentially how quickly the ball left the bat. And that's kind of related to the bat speed, or you would expect it to be. The harder a hitter swings it, the harder the ball's going to leave the bat. But you're right that there's really what the hitter is doing is not controlling the exit velocity. He's controlling how hard he swings, and that's the crucial variable. Um, unfortunately, with the, with the technology that we have now, and you know maybe they'll improve StatCast in the future, but with the technology that we have now, all we can really get at is that exit velocity, not that bat speed. And then is it possible to calculate individual hitter bat speed by, for example, using exit uh, exit velocity of the ball and the launch angle as two vectors in a fi- sort of a physics calculation? Well, part of it is that uh, launch angle is, is, the, is the missing piece, sort of. Um, but, I mean, in theory, I think you could take everything. If you took the whole uh, spectrum of information that you have, so the trajectory of the ball um, as it came in and the trajectory of the, of the ball as it left using the exit velocity and launch angle, uh, but you'd also need horizontal a- angle or spray angle. But if you took all of that stuff into account, then I think you could come up with some pretty good guess at how fast uh, or at the what the, the batter's swing was like. Uh, unfortunately, we're still missing parts of that. Like I said, we're missing the spray angle. And if you don't have that, then you can't tell exactly what the collision was like. 
Um, so that's really the the tricky uh, part about all this. We're trying to we're trying, like you said, we're trying to get at the what the hitter is actually doing, but um, we need essentially the the uh, velocity and motion path of both the bat and the ball uh, before and after to figure out what that is. Now, we, you said that the, the pitchers can have a limited effect on exit velocity, and if we assume that batted, the uh, batter's swing speed is going to remain pretty consistent if he has a good hack, I mean, if he gets completely fooled and he has to lunge, of course, there's going to be some changes. But in general, I think we can agree that probably Giancarlo Stanton and Mark Trumbo have higher bat speeds than you know s- s- some of the middle infielders or reserve catchers and stuff like that. It, it seems intuitive, and I'm sure the correlation is very strong. But some pitchers, nonetheless, you say, have the ability to control that a little bit. Not as much as the batter has, but a little bit at the pitcher side. How does that effect work? Sure. Um, well, so it's it's basically the things that you would expect. So, for example, we know and have known for a long time that when, pitcher, when batters swing at pitches that are outside of the strike zone, their outcomes are markedly worse. So their batting average goes down, their slogan goes way down. Um, and basically, that's for the reason that you just said. If they're having to swing out of their power zone, then they're going to have to lunge at it or otherwise take a weak swing or get more glancing contact. So if you flip that logic around, pitchers who can get batters to swing at pitches that are outside of the strike zone are going to minimize the damage that can be done. Another thing that contributes is control of the count. We know that hitters tend to take worse swings on later counts. Um, so weaker swings, sort of more protective swings. So guys that get into good counts consistently, um, and this is often the reason why the best uh, pitchers are also the best, uh, strikeout pitchers are also the best, um, ones at controlling exit velocity. If they have them in pitchers counts consistently, then the, it sort of limits the damage that a given hitter can do, um, because they're taking these weak sort of, uh, protective swings instead of really, trying to looking for a pitch to hit and then just hammering it. So those are two factors. The other factor is um, the pitch velocity, which actually works in the opposite way. So the harder a pitcher throws it, the more exit velocity uh, the batted ball is going to have. Uh, and that has to do with the physics of it. But it's a pretty, it's a somewhat limited um, relationship there. It's about for every one mile per hour of um, pitch velocity, exit velocity increases by 0.15 miles per hour. So it's not too significant there, but over the course of a given season, if you're comparing like Jared Weaver and Noah Syndergaard, um, it does manifest in terms of Syndergaard having higher exit velocities because he's throwing it so much harder. You mentioned that strikeout pitchers tend to do better in these sorts of things. Have you noticed or has there ever been demonstrated a difference between pitchers who are generating swing and miss contact versus pitchers who are getting a lot of taken strikes? That is, they're fooling the batter to such a great extent that he's not swinging at all? I think there's there's been some good work done on that. I don't know it, uh, I don't know it offhand so much, but uh, definitely guys that are getting swinging strikes that's really preferable uh, in terms of projection and in terms of, you know, saying that that ability is going to go forward. Um, if you're relying on deception and getting strikes in the zone that uh, pitchers are just going to, or sorry, that hitters are just going to watch go by, um, that is certainly an ability for some pitchers, but it's not necessarily a stable, long-lasting ability. Whereas if you're just pumping it by at 100 miles an hour, 
um, you know, if you some if you drop to ninety nine miles an hour, you're still going to be pretty good. So I think that the, the there are some differences between those two types of pitchers, and, and the main one I would suggest is um, probably that the pitchers who are able to get swinging strikes have a better long term outlook than the guys that are getting a looking strike. I inferred from your article, Rob, that the pitcher effect on uh, FIP, fielding in, uh, independent, is more pronounced at the margins. That is, the pitchers who are really good at uh, reducing exit velocity or really not good at it, and most of them are in the middle where it's hardly making any difference. Is that a pretty accurate reading? Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, most pitchers, and this is the reason, by the way, that FIP works so well, is that the vast majority of pitchers fall within a narrow band where they're not really making a big uh, impact on exit velocity, and if they, to the extent that they are, it's not terribly consistent year to year, which is why FIP is, is a good statistic generally. Um, but there are these marginal guys uh, who do seem to control it more, and they're worth looking at too. Give us a couple of examples of, you mentioned Clayton Kershaw, of pitchers who have the uh, exit velocity reducing skill. So one of the ones that I've looked at most uh, this year is Kyle Hendricks, uh, the Cubs uh, pitcher, and he's done just an incredible job uh, reducing exit velocity and also controlling launch angle. He's famously good at getting grounders, and that works out really well because the Cubs defense has been so good, especially the infield. So uh, he's one. Um, I actually looked at Wei-Yin Chen last year, um, and he seemed to have had some consistent success reducing exit velocity, but it's really it's really hard to say that that ability is going to continue um, year to year, even though it seems to be pretty constant within a year. So although I'd say that Hendricks, for example, is uh, very good at controlling exit velocity right now and probably for the remainder of the year, um, whether he's going to be as good at that next year is a very open question. Why is that? It seems like a skill that would transfer from year to year, even throughout a career, maybe with some variations, but it doesn't seem like it would be something that you'd have in 2015 and lose in 2016. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, I think part of it is that, at least for Hendricks, I think probably this is the case for uh, Wei and Chen as well, a lot of it comes from control. It comes from being able to put the pitch exactly where you want to put it. And that's, you know, we're, we're talking about really pinpoint margins here. Um, if a if a pitcher upsets his mechanics just slightly, just a little tiny bit, and he's only able to control the the pitch to a slightly lesser degree, then all of a sudden it makes the whole strategy that he was using to control exit velocity a lot less stable. Uh, if you think about instead of that, if you think about someone a power pitcher um, like Syndergaard, for example, who's just or Fernandez or uh, Raul Chapman, any of these guys that if they throw it really hard and then they mess up their mechanics and they're still throwing really hard but not quite as hard, they're still going to be an effective pitcher. Um, so you can still bet on them to be pretty good the next year, even if they're going to be diminished from, from this year. Uh, I don't. I think it's a very unstable situation with these control pitchers who manage exit velocities. I think that there are probably some guys, uh, or we will see some guys as we get more of this data, who are just able to continue with that ability for their whole careers. Like, Greg Maddox, for example, was a famous control artist, and I would be willing to bet that if we could somehow figure out how he had controlled exit velocity, he would be consistent. But generally, I think that these little tiny mechanical perturbations in terms of how they throw the ball, um, those can really mess up your exit velocity controllability. So it takes someone really special to be able to consistently do that for a long period of time. 
At the other end of the margin, of course, would be if you have some pitchers on the good side who are good at reducing exit velocity. Are there any pitchers who are so far on the other margin that they're actually increasing exit velocity relative to the group? Uh, there are a few of those guys. The, the trouble is that they don't tend to last very long in Major League Baseball. They're often bad pitchers for other reasons. Um, so the fact that they can't control exit velocity is just kind of like a, a cherry on top sort of thing that makes them even worse than they otherwise would be. Um, none of them were especially notable, as I recall. Uh, they were all kind of like fringe average guys that were pressed into service because of injuries. So I think this is probably a situation where there would be more, if we could go into the minors and bring up a bunch of minor league pitchers to face major league competition, those guys would probably be really bad at controlling exit velocity. And the reason why we see so little variation in controlling exit velocity for pitchers is partially because those guys just don't get into baseball, uh, don't get into the major leagues. I mean, they're not able to, they're not able to hack it once they get up to that level because it is important to minimize damage to some extent. So, Really, you know, no one, no one especially notable, no, no major stars that had, that were really missing or on the low end of controlling exit velocity. You did mention Wei Yin Chen, uh, who has turned out to be, at least uh, in one season, pretty good at suppressing exit velocity. And yet he's not an especially successful pitcher. I mean, he's a, he's a middle of the road, mediocre sort of guy. Why is Wei Yin Chen a pedestrian major league pitcher given this ability to, uh, to reduce or control the uh, exit velocity of hit balls? Well, I think that, um, like you said, he's, he's mediocre, not terrible. Um, and I think that it's really the, the less important skill. If you had to pick one skill being a pitcher, um, in terms of suppressing exit velocity or just, say, missing bats, you definitely take missing bats. Like, there's no question or competition about which one is better. So he has this one, he has exceptional ability in this one aspect of being a pitcher, but the fact is that aspect of being a pitcher is so much less important than just throwing the ball hard and overpowering hitters that it's never going to make you into a superstar just on that basis. Um you can be really good at missing bats and then also add this to your skill set to be even better. But to just try and succeed based on this one skill, I think the best case scenario is that you end up like Wei Yin Chen, a pretty mediocre guy who's done the best with fairly limited uh, stuff, um, but really is never going to break through or doesn't look like he's going to break through to, you know, all-star, you know, best in the league kind of status. That's an interesting finding all the same. If you can identify pitchers in that position, you know, just so-so mediocre stuff, but they have this one knack for being able to generate weaker contact or to, to suppress these exit velocities, at least he might have a career. And in fantasy baseball, at least, especially in leagues where you're only playing American League or National League players, a guy like that can actually have some value. It might not be a bad thing to keep an eye on, even if you're not expecting that your way in Chen's are going to end up being your Clayton Kershaw's. They're also not going to be the kind of guys who fall out of the league because they have no such skill. Right, I agree. I mean, they, those, those kinds of guys can be useful both from a fantasy team and from a you know a running a major league baseball team perspective. Like, you need those kinds of guys to fill out the back end of your rotation. It's really important to have them around. And occasionally what will likely happen, as happens with all pitchers, is that they will have, uh, uh, you know, they could have a fantastic season just based on those statistics um, and their ability to control like, the velocity and the normal range of variation that happens with pitchers. 
So you never know, and it's it's useful to know that this this or this skill in controlling exit velocity is out there, and to be able to look for it, uh, I think it, it would help um, in terms of fantasy and, and uh, real roster management. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Rob Arthur, the baseball writer at 538.com. And Rob, you had another recent article at the site titled, Steroids Probably Aren't Causing Baseball's Power Surge. And you question the common supposition that steroids have somehow re-infiltrated the game and affected HR rates. I don't even know if we can say that the re-infiltrated is accurate. They may never have left. We just don't know. But you conclude that even even if there are steroids floating around in there, they're probably not as big a deal as a lot of people think insofar as power is concerned. Yeah, yeah. This was based on a long-term project that Ben Lindbergh and I have been working on where we noticed basically at the around the end of last season that home run rates had just spiked really, really impressively. And it happened quite suddenly at the All-Star break in 2015. And it's continued through this year. And we started reaching out to different people for explanations and um, looked for a whole bunch of different things. One of the consistent answers that we got was, well, maybe it's steroids or some new kind of performance-enhancing drug. Um, So we didn't really take it seriously initially, but I wanted to make sure that I had investigated that and along with whatever other possibilities people brought up. And so I looked at the, the steroid era, which we think was probably like 19, early 1990s to about 2005 or so. Um, and I compared that to what we've seen this year. And there's, there are some similarities in terms of how quickly home run rate has jumped up. But there's also a lot of differences. It doesn't seem to have uh, helped older players as much uh, or really at all in the last two years. But that was a big hallmark of the steroid era was that older guys were getting really good uh, compared to younger guys. Um, and the other the other major thing was that steroids seem to cause a more pronounced jump for the top 5 or 10 or 20 hitters um, compared to the average than, uh, than what we're seeing now, which is basically the top 5 or 10 or 20 are jumping up to the same degree as the average. And that fits when you consider that you have these guys like Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds that just became quite suddenly otherworldly at hitting home runs and hitting generally. Um, we're not really seeing that this year. We're seeing good hitters uh, across the league, and we're seeing hitters be better in comparison to pitchers than they've been in the past five years or so. But we're not seeing the generation, a, a new generation of you know super hitters that are uh, just breaking records and, and performing to this inhuman level. And it seems like if if it was a steroid caused uh, effect, and it's happening pretty much uniformly across all hitters, then either they're all taking steroids, or there's got to be a different explanation. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind here is that if if they were all taking steroids at the same time, it would be really hard to hide that from MLB. I think that someone would figure this out. Um, and it would help the pitchers, too, right? I mean, one of the other hallmarks of the steroid era was that we suddenly started seeing these incredible pitching performances as well, uh, Roger Clemens, notably. Um, and so we're not, we're not really seeing that. We're not seeing pitchers. They're not seeing suddenly some pitchers become really otherworldly. We're seeing some good pitchers, granted, but the ratio of those top pitchers to the regular pitchers stayed the same as well. So it, it really doesn't look like it could be a, a performance-enhancing drug that's affected everyone so uniformly, both hitters and pitchers, 
and so suddenly, because remember, it, it all happened in about a month um, immediately after the All-Star break in 2015. So it's really hard to square that with the idea that, you know, suddenly everyone in the league at the same time started the same amazing performance-enhancing drug, and it didn't help the pitchers at all. The article followed some interesting research by Ben Lindbergh analyzing the possible changes in the baseball as the source of the added home runs in recent years. What is the status right now of the juiced ball theory? Yeah, so Ben and I had looked at that in the in two previous articles, and uh, we that was what it really came down to, is after we had lost, after we sort of discarded every other possible hypothesis that we could think of, there was one left, which was that the balls themselves had changed. The construction of the ball had changed. Um, so we did try and look at this. Um, we bought some Major League Baseballs, some official Major League Baseballs from Rawlings. We got them sent to a lab at Washington State University where they fired them out of an air cannon at a plate to measure how, how much they bounced off of that plate. Um, and that's how you would, that's how MLB, in fact, does these tests. Uh, unfortunately, there's such a range of variation between baseballs that you're really not, we weren't able to come up with any firm conclusion. Although in our results, looking at one dozen baseballs before and after the All-Star break um, in 2015, we did see that there was a slight increase in um, the bounciness of the ball after the All-Star break. It wasn't a significant difference, and that's really down to the fact that any, any two balls, even in the same batch from MLB, can vary by as much as 50 feet in terms of how far they travel um, on a given home run, for example. Um, so they have there's a tremendous amount of variation ball to ball. So we're kind of at this we're kind of stuck at this impasse now where um, doing these lab tests is extremely expensive. And although we'd like to really nail nail this down, the juice ball hypothesis, and show that the balls are different, we can't even say for sure that the balls that we ordered are the same as the ones that are getting used in MLB clubhouses. So we, we're sort of at a loss for how to how to prove this more than we already have, um, but hopeful that there will be some kind of breakthrough or we'll figure out some, some other way to do this testing. Uh, I think it would be really great to know for sure that it's the ball. Was it Sherlock Holmes who said, once you've eliminated all the other factors, the only one left has to be the truth? That's right. That's sort of the where we're at with it. I, I think that nobody has come up with any any alternative explanation that has much ability to explain what we saw. And we've, we've chased down every single one that we've heard, including steroids, and just haven't been able to square any of them. Um, so we're left with this one thing. And, I, you know, while I agree with Sherlock on that, it would be really nice to have that smoking gun where we could say, like, look, we tested, we cut open some balls, and this is what we found. In fact, they are different. Um, and we don't have that quite yet. Wasn't there a big sort of natural experiment because the minor leagues and the major leagues use different baseballs? Uh, something to that effect? I seem to remember reading it, and now I can't remember where, whether it was something you guys wrote or whether it was somewhere else. That's something we did. Yeah, that was something we did, and, and we, we did see that as a natural experiment. Um, basically, the minor league balls are slightly different. They're made at a different factory from the major league balls. And so we had the idea of looking at what happened to the minor league balls uh, during the home run surge last year, whether they also went up. Because if they also went up, then maybe it would indicate that there's just better hitters now or perhaps it would be compatible with uh, performance-enhancing drugs that are being used by minor league players. In fact, what happened is that the minor leagues 
have been going down in terms of home run rates for the past few years, and they went down. Um, versus what happened in the major leagues, they spiked. Uh, and in fact, we went, we took it a step further and we said, okay, here are some guys that played in the minor leagues and in the major leagues. What happened to their home run rates when they went from AAA to the majors? And they increased hugely. Every time a guy went from AAA to the majors, his home run, home run rate spikes dramatically. Um, and we even took it a step further than that. And we said, okay, here's a particular pitcher in, in AAA and he's facing a tr- particular hitter in AAA. They actually faced the, faced each other later in the year, uh, in 2015, uh, in MLB. What happened to their home run rates there? And those went up. So with the same exact players in two different leagues, uh, their home run rates were radically different, much higher in MLB. And we really can't figure out any reason why that would be the case except for the ball. That's the one sort of common element that would have changed between those uh, matchups. So that's why you know we're pretty certain, or not, I wouldn't say pretty certain, we have good evidence, I think, that it's the ball, but still no, no absolute proof yet. And we should add that there's no uh, evidence yet, anyways, that Major League Baseball is deliberately manipulating the ball to get these results. There are, there's been changes in suppliers, changes in location, changes in factory, and and these other things that you mentioned that could just be kind of accidental juicing of the ball through the manufacturing process rather than through an overt manipulation by somebody in a position to do that. Right, I absolutely agree. I think there's no real reason why. Um, Manfred and the rest of the higher-ups at MLB would go about doing this deliberately. I mean, offense is down, but there's, it would be really silly to try and change this deliberately uh, without telling anybody, uh, especially to the degree that they changed it. Like, it's a very obvious change. So it, it seems to me likely that what happened was that there was some kind of small manufacturing change, um, and we don't know what that could be. We do know that the factory that produces the baseballs had... Uh, pretty severe layoffs, and they moved part of the uniform manufacturing at that factory um, to another location. And we don't we don't have any evidence that that affected how the baseballs were made specifically. Um, but uh, it seems reasonable to believe that if they were cutting costs, if they were rearranging their labor, something like that, something small could have changed. And I think it's it's really significant um, talking to phys- physicists who work on baseball stuff. It's really amazing how precise uh, you have to be when you're making a baseball. If you change this uh, coefficient of restitution, which is essentially the bounciness of the ball, if you change that by 1%, um, that's enough for home run rates to go up by 20%, you know? So really they're dealing with incredibly small tolerances, and even if they make just a tiny little difference in terms of how they're uh, producing the baseballs, it could be enough to cause home run rates to really jump you know, when you look at the whole situation, I've heard uh, there was a, a, a theory for a while that it was hardness of the bats. They were using more maple bats, which has tighter grain, that the bat wood in general was improving, that the bat balancing was improving, the bat manufacturing, all these kind of things to do with the bats, the PEDs. I, I refer kind of to the Occam's razor theory that the simplest explanation is usually the right explanation. Not always the case, of course, but surely the ball should jump out at people as the most obvious source of all that goes on, given the fact that it happens so widely across the sport. 
I agree. And the the issue with, you know, bats and, and other things in terms of player approach is it really doesn't explain what happened to the minors and the majors last year. Like I was saying before, when we looked at the same players in the minors, when they went up to the majors, they suddenly had these higher home run rates. And players generally keep their same bats from the minors. They've used them again in the majors. And they don't suddenly go through, you know, if it's a day-to-day, they don't suddenly put on 10 pounds of muscle and five days and then walk into the MLB uh, clubhouse and start hitting homers immediately the next game. That That's not really a, a compelling explanation for what happened. So I agree. Um, it's really hard to come up with another set of explanations that would be able to describe this uh, and wouldn't be, you know, incredibly complex, which leaves you with this Occam's, Occam's razor sort of approach where, well, it seems most likely that it's the ball. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Arthur, baseball writer at 538.com. And Rob, in fantasy terms, and I know you're not a fantasy guy, but most of our listeners are, Bryce Harper was a top three pick coming into 2016. Nowhere near that this year. You had an article in early August at the site aptly titled, Why Bryce Harper Has Gone From Great to Good. So let's start with that question. Why has Bryce Harper gone from great in 2015, a historically great season, to just good this year? Yes, I mean, this comes back to one of my near favorite statistics, which is exit velocity. Um, If you look at the exit velocity that Bryce Harper generated last year, it was quite good, and he was getting good results, probably even better than he should have been. Um, But this year, it's gone down fairly substantially, and he's now kind of about average in terms of his exit velocity. And so he's basically lost a bunch of power because of that. the change in his exit velocity has been really substantial and enough to knock off hundreds of or hundred points or so off of his uh, slugging and uh, batting average and etc. You wrote that the actual value of Harper's batted balls was over expectations, as you mentioned last year, and now it's well under. Uh, I I know you're familiar with this idea that some analysts have started identifying the points where various metrics, for want of a better term, stabilize and become more dependable or forecastable. Given all of that, is it possible, is it likely, that the 162-game span that we call a season, which is in fact just a set of arbitrary endpoints, is still not a large enough sample to stabilize the metrics that you're talking about? Well, that's one of the greatest things about exit velocity is that it's reported to stabilize in anywhere from, I think I've heard, as low as 15, but as much as like 30 batted balls. So that's a tiny, tiny fraction of a season. Um, a lot of hitters, I think, get more than 200 track batted balls in a year. So you're talking about really quite precise measurements of what a hitter's exit velocity is in only, let's say, a month. Um, we know how good they are at hitting the ball. That's why it's one of the best, better metrics, in, in my opinion. Um, and that's why you can say confidently that something changed about Bryce Harper as opposed to, you know, just bad luck. Uh, if, if really Harper was had, was the same underlying hitter, uh, you really wouldn't expect to see his bad, his exit velocity drop by this much, uh, just due to that quick, uh, early stabilization of exit velocity. So you have this exit velocity, which you're fairly sure has become a new baseline uh, exit velocity for this particular player, but we still don't know why. And that, uh, where does the investigation go from knowing that it's going on to figuring out why it's going on? Yeah, that's to me, that's the next frontier. Um, I think that already uh, I'm using it to look at how players are trending, and I know 
Um, many people are using it in, this, in a similar way, and I'm sure many fantasy players are on top of this already. But the next step would be to say, okay, if a player's exit velocity goes down by three miles per hour from year to year, uh, what does that mean for them going forward into the future, both in the second half of this year and the next at-bat, and also next year? Um, I think with with someone like Harper, where it wasn't the case that pitchers changed how they were approaching him, it wasn't the case that his launch angle changed a lot, so he wasn't hitting the ball tremendously differently. Um, it, to me, that suggests uh, some kind of injury or a mechanical change. And if it's an injury, uh, it should be something where Maybe he'll be debilitated for the rest of this year, but he'll probably come back from that uh, at worst next year after he's had some time to rest and recuperate. If it's a mechanical change, uh, you know, it's possible that he could fix that the next game just by slightly altering his mechanics. Um, so trying to figure out what the causes are of the exit velocity change, that should be the next where we go next with this. And, and I'm not quite certain how you, how you do that, but I think it would be helpful to look at you know, if you if a player's exit velocity changes by this much, how long do you expect that change to last, or how much do you expect it to go back to their previous uh, average? I wonder if you could uh, explore a database of uh, exit velocities and DL stints, and notice that you know there's a decline in exit velocity preceding a lot of DL stints, especially of the upper body. These oblique injuries or shoulder injuries for batters can sometimes wrist injuries, especially for power hitters. If you maybe there's some way of correlating whether those kind of DL stints are preceded, usually or often or to some percentage of the time, by a decline in exit velocity that makes that a little more apparent, the connection a little more apparent. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's always tough to get the DL data, but uh, once it's out there, that's certainly something I'm going to be looking at, and I, I think that'll be I think that'll be fruitful. I mean, just anecdotally, I've noticed that's the case for a lot of hitters. I haven't put it to the test statistically yet, but I've noticed that a lot of hitters seem to see their exit velocities decline when they're just prior to getting on the DL, and then come back encouragingly when they come off the DL. So uh, we saw that actually last year with Brian Zimmerman was a perfect example of this. He, his uh, first half was pretty uh, mediocre to bad, and his exit velocity was quite low. He, I think, went on the DL for a brief time, came back, and was a totally changed hitter uh, and had much better exit velocity. So I, I do think there's probably some connection there. Whether it can be proven, um, I think that, that remains to be seen. It sounds like you're pretty optimistic that Bryce Harper can and probably will recover in 2017. Uh, if you were a betting man, what kind of odds would you put on uh, uh, gets re returns to form, stays the same, declines further? Oh, um, I think he's very likely to return. Well, it depends on what you mean by return to form. I guess that's the crucial component here. I don't think there's any chance that he, or a very low chance, that he goes back to being the kind of MVP hitter that he was last year. Um, he was just absolutely astounding last year. One of the best seasons, uh, I believe the best hitting season since Barry Bonds 2004. And part of that was luck uh, helped because if you looked at his exit velocities and his launch angles, he was a really good hitter, but not good enough to be 100% uh, better than the league average, for example, which I believe was what his statistics were close to. So I don't think there's much chance of that. I do think there's a pretty solid chance that he will return to being an extremely good hitter in baseball, maybe 50% better than league average. That's, I believe, what the Dan Graff's projections have him pegged for over the rest of the season, and I'll be shocked if it's much lower than that next year. Um, he 
he's a he's sort of great underlying in terms of his underlying abilities, plate discipline and the power that he's shown before. He's got really great fundamentals. It's not surprising for him to be a good hitter. Um, so I think that he's going to end up somewhere between that MVP form that we saw last season and where he is now. And that somewhere in between those two extremes is actually quite a good hitter. Um, I don't think there's much chance he'll stay at this level or decline going forward. Uh, I would say, I don't know, maybe 20% or less. Um, unless we find out that it's some kind of chronic lingering injury. Uh, there was some talk after I wrote the article that he had a, a neck ailment, I believe it was. Um, and those can, those can uh, sometimes turn out to be long-term things. But the specific one that was written about, I don't think was. So the only scenario in which I see him uh, staying at this level or getting worse is if that really is a chronic injury that's going to cause problems for him down the line. Uh, we have seen that with some hitters, and they permanently, essentially permanently lose their abilities or maybe have flashes where they're healthy, but for the most part have to suffer with it for a long period of time. Um, so I, the only way that I see him really having problems going forward is if it is really that kind of chronic injury that never goes away. Before we leave this topic of exit velocity, something's just occurred to me. Is the is the distribution of exit velocities for an individual player almost always or pretty regularly the, a bell-shaped normal distribution or are there players who have good the same kind of average but larger tails? Uh, that's a really good question, something I haven't looked into much. I know that for all hitters in the league, it tends to follow a roughly bell-shaped distribution, um, but whether there are certain hitters that are more variable than others, I think that's a really interesting um, idea. Uh, I think that it would make sense to me if that was the case. Some some guys are... Uh, you know, have problems with swing and miss, but when they can get the barrel on the ball, they really hit the crap out of it and it goes out of the yard. Um, versus, you know, other guys that maybe they're consistent uh, hitters and they always get uh, an additional mile per hour or two on their exit velocity compared to an average guy. Uh, I think that that would be worth looking into. Yeah, I think it could be interesting. Uh, uh, Rob, I like to end these expert interviews with our studs and duds. We have been focusing on the balance of the current season with our previous experts, but with so little season left, I'd like to start looking at 2017. Maybe get some of your thoughts on players who might be able to step it up a level next year. We'll call them the studs. And players who might be disappointing next year, we'll call them the duds. Let's start with the hitters and in the American League. Who's your stud hitter for 2017? I looked at hitters that uh, had upward slopes in their exit velocity or downward slopes, um, and same with pitchers. And then I sort of looked at the top 10 for each and picked someone that I thought was had good indicators otherwise. So um, for the AL hitters, one the guy with the highest upward slope on his exit velocity, so he was showing the most increasing exit velocity, was uh, Rubin Odor. Um, and he's shown flashes this season, um, but I think that when you combine what I've seen of his on-the-field play with that upward slope, I think it's pretty likely that he's going to end up being uh, really a much higher level next year. And how about a stud hitter in the National League? In the NL, I, I saw Starling Marte uh, with a similar upward slope. Um, he's sort of he's been very consistent in terms of what he does the last few seasons, but uh, he's always looked like, to me at least, that he's on the edge of a breakout. I'm hopeful that with the with a little bit more exit velocity that will manifest next season. 
Starling Marte, of course, already a very productive fantasy player, very productive uh, player in real baseball. And a lot of people are very curious to see what his ceiling might be, especially with uh, Andrew McCutcheon uh, seemingly not uh, going to be the, the man in Pittsburgh, given his recent production. Uh, let's go to the duds, guys, you think might be falling off next year. Let's start in the American League. In the American League, I have uh, Francisco Lindor had one of the most uh, severe declines in exit velocity. And he's had some really good luck on batting average on balls in play both uh, this season and last. And I don't see how that's going to be sustainable in the long run. Um, and especially if his his underlying uh, exit velocity is going down, uh, I don't I don't think he's uh, a bet to be as productive as he's been. And in the National League, who's a dud over there? It's funny that you mentioned Andrew McCutcheon because he was one of the most declining ones, which I know is really bad news for Pirates fans. This season has been really bad for him. Um, and it looks like, unfortunately, it's a real decline and not just getting unlucky. Um, his exit velocity is way down from last year, and it's still falling this year. So I think his days of superstardom, um, they could be um, coming to an end, although I'd like to be wrong about that because he's so much fun to watch. Rob Arthur's 2017 stud and dud hitters in the American League, his stud hitter Rugnet Odor of Texas in the National League, Starling Marte of the Pirates, his duds in the American League, Francisco Lindor of Cleveland, and in the National League, Andrew McCutcheon of the Pirates. Moving over to the mound now, uh, let's talk about a stud pitcher in the American League. All signs look positive. For me, that was uh, Drew Pomerantz. Um, he, he's getting much lower exit velocities, but on top of that, after the trade, he went from something like the 20th-ranked defense with the Padres to the top 10 defense with the Red Sox. So if you have this combination of uh, lower exit velocities and fielders that are better able to, to handle uh, batted balls, you're going to improve. And so I think it's, it's reasonable to think that he's, he's going to be excellent going forward. And in the National League, who's another stud? Mike Leach. Um, been sort of his normal self, maybe a little bit less, but I think that with the lower exit velocities, uh, Again, he's, he's likely to, to get back up to a higher level. Turning to the duds, uh, an American League pitcher you think is on the decline? Felix Hernandez. And I didn't even need to look at the exit velocities for this one because it's it's been obvious to see just going from his pitch FX numbers that uh, he's lost a bit of velocity. Uh, he's still getting by quite well, but um, he's getting older. And um, once you get to a point where your, your stuff is declining, it gets increasingly difficult to continue to fool hitters and become more reliant on sort of deception and that sort of thing um so it'll be interesting to see i mean he's he's the guy he's a guy that's smart enough that he could uh keep it up for a while but i also think in the long run maybe it won't be next year but um sometime his his fortunes are going to fall pretty hard and finally a national league pitcher who looks like a 2017 dud noah Syndergaard, um really declining uh, velocities and uh increasing exit velocities and we know now from that mid-season um, update that he has a bone spurs, so lingering injury. So I think you put all that together, uh, he's going to be in trouble. I wrote a uh, piece for BaseballHQ.com about Noah Syndergaard, and the, the research I did for it was mostly medical or biomedical, and a lot of the problems he's having with his elbow, they keep insisting it's not structural. That was his his comment to the media, I think, when, when he started having these issues, was that he'd been scoped or he'd been MRI'd and that it wasn't structural. That was the word he was using. And it may not have been, but all of the trouble he seems to be having are precursors of the structural trouble he's working so hard to avoid. Yeah, I noticed that too when I when I uh, read that that comment about it's not structural. Uh, I don't know how you have changes to the bone of your elbow and have it not be structural, but uh, I, I 
I hope that he's right and that it's not a long-term issue, but certainly with the way his performance is trending uh, and that on top of it, it seems like it will be a problem for him. Rob Arthur's stud and dud pitchers for 2017 in the American League. His stud, Drew Pomeranz of Boston in the National League. Mike Leake of the Cardinals, American League dud Felix Hernandez, King Felix of Seattle, and in the National League, dud pitcher Noah Syndergaard. All right, Rob, this has been an absolute treat. Tell us where listeners can read more of your work. Yeah, you can find me at 538.com. I write about once a week about baseball there. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. Um, And... uh, yeah, keep, keep an eye out for all the stuff I might be doing, including about criminal justice and whatever else. I'm going to look up that criminal justice work as well. I have an interest in it. Uh, Rob, again, thanks very much for doing this. I had high hopes for this call, and uh, you've more than exceeded my expectations. And uh, seeing as you're uh, about to leave, have good exit velocity. All right, thank you, and thank you for having me on. Rob Arthur is the baseball writer at 538.com. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long, with content across a wide range of great information. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has regular daily analysis of news and rosters, and ongoing analysis of player performance and skills. This week at the site, In the GM's office column, Ray Murphy discusses late-season standings flips. Brian Rudd's facts and flukes performance validation analysis looks at Buster Posey, Keon Broxton, and three more players. And our daily call-ups report fills you in on the top prospects coming to the big leagues, like pitcher Vicente Campos in Arizona, Yulieski Gurriel in Houston, and many more. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's minor league scouting and player projections and roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our Friday commentaries. We have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes coming up. And with Rob Gordon and Ryan Bloomfield out of the lineup this week, we'll lead off with our frequent flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Yankees third baseman Ronald Torres and Minnesota right-hander Pat Light. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. If it's going to be a sprint to the finish of the 2016 season, maybe now is a great time to talk about speed. In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll profile two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who have the potential to turn on the speed for the last sprint of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. Let's begin with Yankees utility man Ronald Torres, who has been seeing more time at third base this month. Although the month of August represents a very, very small sample size, 10 games for Al Treas to be exact, the production levels for Treas are outstanding. Round Trace is batting 409 with an OPS over 1,000 in August, or digging deeper, Round Trace has collected 9 hits in 10 games in August, including 4 doubles as first Major League home run. But don't expect a big power surge from Round Trace. The 5'10", 150-pounder has never hit more than 6 home runs in any season in the minors. Not exactly a stat that profiles well at corner infield. Plus, let's face it, Raul Torres' 400 batting average in August is unsustainable. 
That's why Ronald Treas, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, Ronald Treas has maintained a contact rate of 90% or higher in three of the five months that comprise the 2016 season so far. His contact rate has never dipped below 78% in any month this season. Not to mention, in addition to a statistically scouted speed index of 172, where 100 represents league average, he's fast! Combine that with the ability to play several positions. He's played second base, shortstop, third base, and right field for the Yankees in 2016. And Raul Treas, if given a significant amount of playing time down the stretch, could be a very valuable asset. Speaking of valuable assets, a few weeks ago at the trade deadline, the Minnesota Twins traded reliever Fernando Abad to the Boston Red Sox for 25-year-old right-handed pitcher Pat Light, who was capable of hitting triple digits with his fastball. Certainly a departure from the command and control pitchers we've seen from the Twins lately, but it may be an uphill climb for Pat Light in the Twins system. The Star Tribune's Phil Miller, in an August 24th article, quoted Joe Maurer as saying that it definitely helps if you have velocity, but pitching is more about location and movement. That's been proven over the test of time. Velocity is nice, but location and movement are more important to getting hitters off balance. Then again, according to Phil Miller, the only pitch, not pitcher, but single pitch in Twins history ever to register triple digits on Major League Baseball's pitch effects system, which was installed nine years ago, was thrown by Juan Murillo in the Metrodome on April 27, 2009. So maybe a little velocity would be a good thing. Remember, in 2014, the Twins only threw one pitch the entire season. One pitch that clocked in at 97 miles per hour or higher, according to Twins Daily. Plus, according to Phil Miller, of the 81 pitchers that have clocked over 100 miles an hour since the pitch effect system was implemented nine years ago, only one of them was wearing a Twins uniform. Perhaps that's about to change with Minnesota's trade for Pat Light. Just watch out for his control issues. Pat Light's control rate of 4.5 walks per game in the minors in 2016 is well above our recommended walks per game equivalent of 2.8 or less. However, Pat Light's dominance rate of 10 strikeouts per nine in the minors this season is quite tantalizing. I guess it's lights out for the competition when you add both Ronald Torres and Pat Light, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated plus one or higher are strong bets for you to start. Those under minus one are strong bets to sit. In between the ones, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. Here with a look at four weekend matchups, including a Saturday National League game with Philadelphia right-hander Jeremy Hellickson in tough against Mets righty Noah Syndergaard in New York, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the last weekend in August. Next weekend will be Labor Day weekend in the United States, and September will be upon us. If you're rebuilding, that means more call-ups to scout. If you're contending, it means worrying that Major League teams out of the playoff hunt may shut down some starting pitchers with workload limits, and others who don't fit into their team's plans for 2017. 
On top of that, injured players aren't always placed on the disabled list after September 1st because clubs can expand their game rosters from 25 up to the full 40. Either way, it's a hectic time for those who humorous Dave Barry might call alert owners. You can't spend the last six weekends in your hammock or watching football and still be a fantasy god or goddess this year or next. So let's look at this weekend's matchups. Three of our four American League starters have recommended sit matchup ratings. The only one with a risk-reward wildcard rating also is our only lefty, Tyler Skaggs. Anibal Sanchez, Dylan Bundy, and Chad Green all have recommended sit matchup ratings. Meanwhile, all four of our National League starters are right-handers with risk-reward wildcard matchup ratings, including Ivan Nova, Chase Anderson, Jeremy Hellickson, and Noah Syndergaard. Let's begin in the American League on Saturday at home-run-friendly Yankee Stadium, where the Bronx Bombers are eight games over 500 and hosting the Baltimore Orioles, who are six games under 500 on the road. Against right-handers, the O's are 15 games over 500, and the New Yorkers are seven games over 500. The Orioles have a run differential of two-tenths of a run per game, and the Yanks have a run differential of minus two-tenths of a run per game. Versus teams at or above 500, both teams are about even. Over their past 10, 20, and 30 games, the Yankees have a slight edge in 20-game records. Give New York a slim advantage overall based on the strength of its home record and the weakness of Baltimore's road record. The Orioles' Dylan Bundy brings in a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 115 to face the Yankees' Chad Green and his recommended sit matchup rating of minus 105. But both are worth a look. After 22 relief appearances to begin the season, the 23-year-old Bundy has made eight starts thus far in his Major League career. Stretching out for three and a third innings in his first one, Bundy logged a PQS disaster zero. He then reeled off three PQS threes and a PQS dominant five in his next four starts, followed by a PQS two and two PQS disasters in his past two outings. In his seven starts after that first one, Bundy has gone 39 and two-third innings, striking out 38 and walking 11 allowing 13 earned runs, five of which were scored by Boston. He has a base performance value, or BPV, of 98 over his past six starts and may be worth the risk if you're not protecting your points and you need to make a move. Chad Green is even greener than Dylan Bundy, with just six major league starts under his belt. Since joining the Yankees' rotation in August after the departure of Ivan Nova via trade and Nathan Eovaldi via Tommy John surgery, in three starts covering 15 and two-third innings, Green has 18 strikeouts and five walks, a whip of 128, and an expected ERA of 348 for a BPV of 126. His past two outings have both been PQS dominant fours, including an 11-strikeout effort at six innings against the free-swinging Toronto Blue Jays. When Green was called up in May, BaseballHQ.com's Jeremy Deloney noted, quote, The sleeper prospect has been absolutely terrific since midseason 2015 and has been stingy thus far in 2016, unquote, rating him a 7D prospect with a number 4 starter upside. If you need a bold move to make something happen, Green may also be worth the risk. In the National League on Saturday, we have yet another game in New York, this one at the incredible shrinking City Field, which is still pitcher-friendly despite the fences being moved in again for this season. At home, the Mets are one game over 500. On the road, the visiting Phillies are six games under 500. Against right-handers, New York is also one game over 500, while Philadelphia is eight games under 500. The Mets have a run differential of plus one-tenth of a run per game, and the Phillies have a run differential of minus one full run per game, better than only the Braves. Versus teams at or above 500, Philadelphia is 15 games under 500, and against teams under 500, New York is one game under 500. 
Both clubs are 5-5 five and five over their past 10 games, and the Fighting Phils are two games over 500 in their past 20. The Mets are down four games in their past 20 and down six games in their past 30. But with that being the only edge held by Philadelphia, New York gets the nod overall. And the Mets have nearly a full point advantage in matchup ratings as well, with Noah Syndergaard's 0-53 eclipsing Jeremy Hellickson's minus 0-42. In his Facts and Flukes column this week, BaseballHQ.com's Ryan Bloomfield summed up Syndergaard's season succinctly, saying, quote, Though he's had bouts with arm fatigue and bone chips in his elbow in 2016, Noah Syndergaard's results on the field haven't shown it. Syndergaard's dominant season comes with full skill support, unquote. His BPV of 170 is better than most closers, and in 24 starts, the man nicknamed Thor for his lightning bolt average fastball velocity of 98 miles per hour has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 46% dominant to 8% disasters on 10 PQS dominant starts and 2 PQS disasters. He's got to be good to go for you at this stage of the season. Jeremy Hellickson is having a bit of a post-type breakout this year, posting career bests in expected ERA, whip, control, dominance, command, and base performance value. But he's on the road Saturday, and BaseballHQ.com's Pitcher Buyer's Guide analyst Stephen Nickran noted this week that Hellickson's BPV on the road is only 73. In 11 road starts, he's had four PQS dominant outings and four PQS disasters, with an average PQS score of 2.6. Because of that, he's probably not worth the risk. Switching to Sunday in the American League, Tyler Skaggs puts up his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 076 against Anibal Sanchez and his recommended sit matchup rating minus 107 in pitcher-friendly Comerica Park, where the Tigers are nine games over 500. The Angels' halos are invisible on the road, as the Anaheimers are 16 games under 500, ranking last in the American League and 27th in the majors. Against left-handers, Detroit is an even 500. Against right-handers, Los Angeles of Anaheim is 19 games under 500, ranking ahead of only Minnesota in the American League and 26th in the majors. The Detroiters have a plus two-tenths of a run per game run differential, and the Angels is minus three-tenths of a run per game. Versus teams under 500, the Tigers are 16 games over 500. Against teams at or over 500, LA is again 27th in Major League Baseball at 16 games under 500. Over their past 20 and 30 games, the Halos ranked dead last at 10 games under 500 in both cases. The Angels are simply overmatched against the Tigers. Tyler Skaggs returned to the mound on fire for the Angels after an absence of two years while recovering from Tommy John surgery. He posted back-to-back PQS dominant outings in his first two starts, but two of Skaggs' four starts since then have been PQS disasters, and his six-start average PQS score is 2-3. In 30 innings pitched, he has 29 strikeouts and 15 walks, so it does not appear that Skaggs will be immune to the control problems besetting most pitchers rebounding from the procedure. He hasn't been helped by his initial hit rate of 37% and strand rate of 66% either. But it's better to keep him on your bench as a stash for next year if you can keep him off your active roster for now, especially after what we just reviewed about the Angels. Since returning to the Tigers rotation in July and making nine starts after being banned to the bullpen for June, Anibal Sanchez has improved from his miserable 12-start beginning to the season. His main gains have been in control, dominance, and command, and he raised his base performance value from 39 to 109. But it's just not enough. Sanchez shaved a run off his expected ERA, but it's still over four. His line drive rate went up from 16% to 23%, and his whip is still an unrosterable 134. There is a trend in his strand rate that implies he's getting worse with runners on base. 
Since his career year outlier of 79%, his strand rate has dropped to 67% in 2014, 66% in 2015, 66% in those first 12 2016 starts, and 61% in his nine starts since then. In his past five starts, Sanchez has two PQS dominant outings and two PQS disasters, plus a PQS2. Even though the Tigers should handle the Angels with ease, Anibal Sanchez is simply the wrong American League A Sanchez for you to start. In the National League on Sunday, Ivan Nova carries a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 070 even after his complete game PQS5 victory last time out. He goes up against the Milwaukee Brewers' Chase Anderson, who has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 003 at hitter-friendly Miller Park, where the Brew crew is seven games over 500, while the Bucks are two games under 500 on the road. But against right-handers, Milwaukee is worst in the National League and 29th in the majors at 16 games under 500. Pittsburgh is only a bit better at eight games under 500. The Brewers have a run differential of minus six-tenths of a run per game, while the Pirates score and allow four and a half runs per game. Versus teams under 500, Pittsburgh is 11 games over 500. Versus teams at or over 500, Milwaukee is 19 games under 500. In their past 10, 20, and 30 games, the Pirates are exactly 500. The Brewers are 500 in their past 30, but four games under 500 in their past 20, and two games under 500 in their past 10 games. The Pirates have the Brewers over a barrel, or perhaps we should say over a keg. Since coming to Pittsburgh at the non-waiver trade deadline, Ivan Nova has two PQS dominant starts at home in PNC Park and a PQS disaster one plus a PQS three on the road for an average road PQS score of two. In 25 innings pitched, he has 18 strikeouts and only one walk for a whip of 111. His August BPV in four starts for the Pirates is 131. And he had BPVs over 100 in five starts each for May and July as well. For his five starts in June, he had a hit rate of 36% and a strand rate of 63% for a BPV of 63. It's extra risky on the road, so play it safe if you're protecting your points, but don't hold back if you need a long shot to come through with Ivan Nova. In the 2016 forecaster, Ryan Bloomfield wrote that Chase Anderson had, quote, little upside, but deep league profit is there if late season gains hold, unquote. Unfortunately, Anderson has failed to repeat those second half improvements from 2015, making his four-start September BPV of 123 look like a mirage. His BPV of 91 this May was propped up by a hit rate of 20% and a career-best control rate of 1.8 walks per nine innings for a whip under one. All six of his starts from mid-June to mid-July this year were PQS disasters. And he had another string of four PQS disasters from mid-April to early May. He has 11 PQS disasters in 24 starts and four PQS dominant fours for a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 17% dominant to 46% disaster. All four of his PQS dominant outings were at home, but he also has four PQS disasters in Miller Park. He's not worth the risk, no matter how much you need a miracle. So as we head into the final month of the regular season, finish off your August with a start from Noah Syndergaard. Depending upon your circumstances, you may even want to shoot the moon with Dylan Bundy, Chad Green, and or Yvonne Nova. But avoid Jeremy Hellickson, Tyler Skaggs, Anibal Sanchez, and Chase Anderson if you can. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I want to talk about the crazy story that led me to Baseball HQ. If it hadn't been for my stalker, you might not be listening to this. 
It's a somewhat long story, as many of my stories tend to be, but bear with me for the next 1,600 words or so. Have I ever let you down? Many years ago, I was putting myself through university by working the overnight shift at a local FM light rock station, spinning such timeless classics as Careless Whisper by Wham, Take a Look at Me Now by Phil Collins, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, and many other similar felonies. I'm sorry, that should be melodies. Or not. Nonetheless, some people liked the station. One of them was a woman who was a fan of the Todd Rundgren ear splitter, Hello, It's Me. And as it worked out, she was also a fan of the smooth announcer introducing it. That was me, in case you're not following. The woman, whom I shall call Marie, not her real name, phoned my show every few nights at around three in the morning. But instead of saying, Hello, It's Me, she would say, Could you play Hello, It's Me by Todd Rundgren? Sometimes I would, most often not, but either way, we would end up just shooting the breeze for a while. Truth be told, she wasn't all that interesting. Talking to her was a way to pass the time, like playing cribbage or something. But if you don't understand why I would talk to her, well, you've never spent eight hours in an airless room spinning The Heart of Rock and Roll by Huey Lewis and Hard Habit to Break by Chicago back to back. To get through that, I'd have chatted with Charles Manson. Anyway, one night I drove down to the station in my buddy's Camaro Z28, which I was looking after while he was out of town. Because it was kind of chilly out and I was wearing a jean jacket, I ran up the stairs in the back of the building instead of my usual weary trudge. I went in the back door, which was propped open as usual to help cool off the studio area. I went inside and started my shift, and at around 3 in the morning, I was playing Church of the Poison Mind by Culture Club and contemplating gouging out my eardrums with an awl when the listener line rang. Could you play Hello, It's Me by Todd Rundgren? Oh, hi, Marie, I said. I don't think I can fit it in. Gotta play Cruel Summer by Bananarama and Dance Hall Days. Boss loves Wang Chung. That's okay, she said. Hey, when did you get the new Camaro? <coughs> huh? What? Ooh. The green Camaro you drove to work, she continued. When'd you get it? Uh, it's my friend's car. I'm looking after it for a few days. Well, I don't really like it, she said. Your little silver car is way cuter. It suits you more than that muscle car. Under normal circumstances, I might have wondered what she meant by that. Also, how she knew I had a little silver Toyota. But these circumstances had gone well beyond normal. Uh, I said wittily, Marie, how is it that you know? She interrupted. And I don't think it's very smart of you to wear that little jean jacket to work on such a cold night. Okay, normal was now a speck in the rearview mirror. This had become officially weird and was about two exits away from scary. Every late night radio DJ has seen the Clint Eastwood movie Play Misty for Me. He plays an overnight disc jockey at a jazz station who has a crazy stalker fan, played by Jessica Walters, who ends up trying to stab him to death. And because he's playing jazz by Errol Garner and Cannonball Adderley, not light rock by Rick Springfield and Holland Oates, he doesn't want to die. The crazy lady in the movie has a trademark. Whenever she calls, instead of saying hello, she says, Can you play Misty for me? That thought ran through my mind at about the same time I remembered the back door of the station was open. I opened my studio door, peered around the corner, saw the coast was clear of knife-wielding lunatics, ran out, slammed the outer door, ran back in, and slammed that door. 
or I would have slammed that door if it weren't on one of those piston things to prevent it from slamming, or, as it turns out, closing any quicker than the Sky Dome roof. When the door finally finished closing, I jammed the deadbolt, stuck at the doorstop under the door, and sat down at the console to play Caribbean Queen by Billy Ocean. Then I called Perry, the night DJ in the AM station across the hall, to warn him he might want to do likewise. Which he did, once I gave him the much shorter version of the story you've just heard the long version of. Namely, crazy woman, back door open, hide! He'd seen play Misty for me too. I called the cops and they sent a car around. The officers searched the station while I hid in the studio behind a locked door, bravely playing Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. Hey, the show must go on. She wasn't in the building. The police officers told me to keep the outside door shut and locked and said they'd spread the word around the shift. A few nights later, somebody found Marie sitting in her car across the alley from the back of the station in a guy's backyard. They told me she wasn't a threat, just a sad, lonely woman who got through her shifts cleaning floors in an office building by listening to Talking in Your Sleep by the Romantics on the radio and convincing herself that the guy introducing the songs was talking just to her. The officers gave her a good scare, told her never to come near the station again and never to call in again. And she never did. By now, you might be thoroughly confused what any of this has to do with Fantasy Baseball or Baseball HQ in my career. Well, your patience is about to be rewarded, I hope. After the shift on the fateful night, Perry across the hall and I got together for a coffee and to discuss the Marie incident in full. When that topic ran out of steam, he started telling me about this new game he was playing, Rotisserie Baseball. I was a big baseball fan, so I said I'd like to join in. Unfortunately, his league had no openings. But we stayed friends, and a few years later, sure enough, I got to join his league. And it stayed my home league for more than 20 years. Perry and I really enjoyed talking about the game, the strategies, the players, the gamesmanship, the category tactics. It was great. One day, I was over at his place to talk some baseball, have a few beers. I noticed him nonchalantly trying to push a stapled booklet, maybe 20 pages or so, under the sofa pillow. Just then, his infant son started wailing in the other room, and Perry, of course, sprang up to go see what was wrong. Being very respectful of other people's privacy, I immediately picked up the pillow, snatched the secret document from its down-filled hiding place, and took a look. It was a rotisserie baseball publication called The Hot Sheet. It was sent out by a guy called Ron Chandler, by fax if I remember it right. I leafed through it and I was hooked at once. Eventually, the hot sheet morphed into the website called BaseballHQ.com, and a while after that, in early 1999, I saw an ad saying Baseball HQ was looking for writers. Paid writers. Since I was now a full-on roto junkie and a full-time newspaperman, I thought I'd throw my sweat-stained Reds cap into the ring. I contacted Ron and he laid out the audition process. I was to pick two players and analyze them in the HQ manner, kind of a hybrid of what we now call facts and flukes and playing time today. I worked really hard on it and I turned in two sparkling analyses. In the first, I predicted stardom in a long, productive fantasy career for a young slugger who had posted 13 homers, 73 RBIs and 6 bags with a 273 batting average in his first full season for the Expos. In the second article, I explained in detail why a new young foreign player would never be able to hit in the big leagues. I went 0 for 2. Brad Fulmer, not quite a superstar. Ichiro Suzuki, superstar.
What the hell, though? I got the gig, and I've had it ever since. Over the years, I've done player analysis in many styles, handled roto strategy for a number of seasons, including a three-part series that brought keeper draft inflation to the attention of HQ subscribers. I was the batting buyer's guide columnist for several years. I got very involved in fantasy research, published a bunch of work I'm still really proud of. I demonstrated to our readers that hit rate was an individual metric for hitters, and I came up with a new HQ metric called Hard Contact Index, which is still used on the site today. In 2006, Ron agreed to bankroll a crazy idea that I should take on a project to extend the HQ brand. It's called Baseball HQ Radio, and you're listening to it. In 2013, it was named the Fantasy Sports Podcast of the Year. I have one last funny story about my HQ relationship. One year, a bunch of my home league guys went to a local greasy spoon for our pre-draft ritual breakfast. As we were wrapping up, this guy, Scotty, another owner, came into the restaurant. He had driven to the city the night before and taken advantage of the opportunity to explore some of the city's finer pubs, bars, watering holes, and booze cans. But while he looked a little worse for the experience, he was clearly brimming with confidence. I'm ready for you guys this year, he crowed. When I was down in the States, I found a new baseball book you can't even get in Canada. In our part of Canada, it was true, fantasy baseball players usually had two choices, Street and Smith and or the Mazeroski. So as we looked expectantly at Scotty, he cockily tossed onto our table his already dog-eared copy of, I'm going to guess you can see where this is going, Ron Chandler's Baseball Forecaster. I picked up the edition and made like I was perusing the cover, which in those days had a full list of contributors in fairly large type. Scotty went into high gear. I bet none of you guys ever even heard of this book. I put the book back down on the table and slowly turned it around so he could see the cover side right side up. Actually, I said, I have heard about this book. I ran my finger slowly down that list of contributors and stopped right above my own name. And I got to say, Ron Chandler told me all about the forecaster a few years ago when he started putting my articles in it. The boys at the table erupted into laughter as poor Scotty just stood there, gobsmacked, as my British friends say. He snatched up his forecaster and stormed out of the restaurant. The forecaster was a big help for him, by the way. He finished second that year, beating, among others, me. But while I didn't get a pennant, thanks to Baseball HQ, I had a dandy yarn that I've told more than a few times over the years. So congratulations to Ron Chandler and to BaseballHQ.com on 20 years of groundbreaking industry leadership, and especially thanks for letting me be a part of it for 17 of those 20 years. HQ has been one of the highlights of my writing career, and I hope the best is yet to come. And Marie, you had a part in all this too, so if you hear this master notes, I'll play some Todd Rundgren for you. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 41 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Rob Arthur, the baseball writer at 538.com, had a lot of very interesting ideas 
and he's a very interesting guy who works for a very interesting website. I highly recommend 538.com. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I have a facts and fluke spotlight deep dive into Cleveland third baseman Jose Ramirez at the BaseballHQ.com site. And in the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, BHQRadio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our Friday feature guest expert will be Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and a regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. That's on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.